Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking with Jamila Wignot, the director of the wonderful film Ailey. Here's Jamila's description of the film. Ailey tells the story of trailblazing pioneer and choreographer Alvin Ailey. It's told in his own words and features evocative archival footage and interviews with those who knew him best. Really, it's a story of becoming, of an artist on a journey to discover his passion, come into his own, and build an extraordinary institution that gratefully is still with us today. Ailey had its world premiere at the 2021 Sundance Film Festival, where it was acquired by Neon for theatrical distribution. Its broadcast premiere was on American Masters on January 11th, and it can be streamed for free on PBS.org until February 8th. Jamila is an Emmy Award-winning filmmaker whose credits include Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates Jr., The African Americans, Many Rivers to Cross with Henry Louis Gates Jr., Town Hall, and Triangle Fire. I really, really like Jamila's film. It's one of my favorite documentary artist portraits in recent memories. It has a freshness and energy about it that really mirrors the vitality and originality of Alvin Ailey himself in the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jamila Wignot, director of Ailey. Welcome to Top Dots, Jamila. Hi, Ken. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Love the film. We like to ask our guests, why do you make documentary films? Oh, boy. First of all, I think one of the standout films that really caught my attention in early days before I was ever thinking about it as a career was the obviously legendary Eyes on a Prize series. In addition to the incredible story that it told, I also remember being just really taken with the idea of firsthand witness storytelling, that these were the people who participated in this moment in history, and here they were recounting that for us. So there was a kind of urgency being able to witness that story as told by the participants themselves. And secondarily, I think documentary just gives me access to people and places that I wouldn't have access to. I like that it, it opens up real worlds for me to experience. I'm also just really nosy. So <laughs> I think I just like the way that documentaries can let you into other people's lives. So tell us, what is the genesis of this project? So this project is really amazing because it actually came to me. I am a director who's made work for public media, PBS, and had been aware of Insignia Films, the production company helmed by Stephen Ives and Amanda Pollock. They called me up and said, hey, do you want to you meet for a coffee? We have a project we'd love to talk to you about. At that time, they were looking for a director for a film about Alvin Ailey. My jaw hit the floor. <laughs> inside because I was trying to play it cool on the outside. <laughs> but we at that moment just said, okay, well, yeah, I'm definitely interested. We love the company and the work. And let's see if we can get access to telling Ailey's story. While his dance works and the company are very, very well known, who he was and what he was driven by wasn't as accessible. Even to me, I didn't know very much about him before beginning the project. So that really was the genesis. Yeah, I was going to ask you, before you started, what did Alvin Ailey and the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater mean to you? You know, really, it was just the dance works themselves. It's like evenings where I get to enter into a theater with audiences who it's almost like a family experience when you go and you attend an evening of Ailey. There's some kind of, you know, communal bond that happens between the dancers and those of us in the audience. There were dance works where I felt that Black American stories were being centered on the stage, and that felt all too rare at the time that I was encountering the company, and especially in the early 90s. And so just a sense of these incredibly community-specific stories that were nonetheless very universal in what they were saying about the human condition. And so that's what it meant before that. And of course, I knew that he had founded the company and bits about that, but I didn't really have a sense of what he was inspired by, what was driving him, and really the kind of Herculean efforts it took for him to get the company and keep it going. Were you a dance enthusiast? Were you somebody who would go to a lot of dance performances? How did dance play a role in, in your life? I wasn't. I discovered the company and dance in general fairly late. I have friends who are postmodern dancers. I guess that's what they would call themselves. I have friends who danced for Ailey. 
So I was into it just in a purely sort of generic audience way and not because I had any relationship to it. I love dancing, but I never was technically trained or pursued that as my main form of art. So really that was one of the kind of amazing challenges coming into the project for me. I felt like I had a handle on how I might be able to tell his story and a handle on what I loved about the work, but really there was a kind of educational process for me in terms of thinking about how to work with dance, selecting the, the dance pieces, editing it, all of that was really something new and, and exciting. And I guess another reason that I love documentaries is, again, that kind of learning curve that each one provides a sort of masterclass for me. In your director's statement in the press notes for Ailey, you write, nothing prepares you for the experience of Ailey. Can you elaborate a bit on that and tell us how you figured out how you wanted to approach this portrait of Alvin Ailey? I think when I was writing that statement, I was really thinking about the first evening that I saw the company, which was in college, again, not being somebody who had been steeped in dance of any form, coming into that darkened theater and just really sensing this kind of vibrancy, this urgency, there's an electric, powerful, theatrical quality to Ailey as well that's sort of distinct from other forms of dance. There's just something where it's a total experience. For folks who have been to the ballet, obviously it's beautiful and lyrical. For folks who are into modern or postmodern, there's a kind of different approach there. But there's just something about the emotion and the feeling that's being communicated in an evening of Ailey that I think resonates so powerfully with audiences. And then in terms of telling his story, it was really connecting to his voice and what it was he was trying to say and where in particular some of his earliest dance works, what are the origins for that material and inspiration? One of the powerful keys for us was hearing Mr. Ailey talk about blood memories and him understanding his experience as part of a kind of larger epic ancestral experience. So once we thought a little bit more deeply about what that term could mean for us cinematically, it opened up a lot of doors because it meant that we could actually place ourselves in Ailey's experience and sort of see the world through his eyes. But that world didn't start and begin with the birth and death of his own life. We could be earlier than that. We could be later than that. There was a kind of wonderful mix that would be available to us by harnessing that idea. Yeah, I love that phrase, blood memories. I'd never heard that before, and it, it has a certain stickiness to it. It really evokes so much, and then you do such a great job of giving it a visual life as well. Speaking of which, can you talk a bit about the raw material you were working with here? Yeah, it's quite the collage. So we had gratefully access to many of the dance works that the company has performed through the years and many versions of those dance works. So we have versions of, say, Blue Suite from the early 60s on through to the present day. So there was sort of a wide range of choices in terms of which dances we would want to show and where in time we wanted to be when showing those dances. So that was one element. In terms of larger archival that we use to shape Mr. Ailey's world, because we really wanted to create a film that would place you in his body so that you would be experiencing his life as he experienced it. So we essentially, with this notion of blood memories, opened ourselves up to a wide range of documentation of Black life, rural life in Texas, life in LA, where he moves after that point in time. And we really wanted it to have the textures that home movie footage has, a kind of amateur-ish quality to it, because again, that felt like it wasn't the sort of perfectly designed shot, something that would catch your eye. And as part of that too, as the story developed, we really made an effort to ensure that most of the archival footage that we had, even if it wasn't people dancing, which we have, you know, backyard barbecue parties or people in juke joints, we really wanted there always to be a sense of movement because it was so clear that even at an early age, he seemed to be aware of the way that people move through the world. He says early on in the film, as he's watching people come back from the fields, I remember bodies moving in the twilight. So that was really extraordinary. And then as I'm just quoting him directly, we also had these audio only interviews that he conducted in the last year of his life. So 1988 to 1989, which were part of a process he was undertaking with a writer named A. Peter Bailey to write an autobiography um, of his own life. And so those tapes are really wonderful because 
you have access to a part of Ailey that you don't have access to if you only have to rely on his public interviews. His public interviews are his most forward-facing self, and oftentimes it's him basically doing the work of promotion for the company, for his ideas, for himself as an artist. They aren't as interior. So realizing that those tapes exist was an incredible coup for us because it meant that he could tell his own story to some degree in his own words. That felt just really powerful to be able to be with him talking about discovering Catherine Dunham, for example, the extraordinary choreographer who really allows him to realize, oh, there is a place for Black bodies in dance, which he hadn't realized prior to that point, as opposed to hearing a scholar or even one of his collaborators say, oh, Catherine Dunham was really important to him. There was just an intimacy that that afforded us, which was the luck of documentary that you don't always have these materials. So it was very, very exciting once we finally got those. I presume that book never came out. The book actually did come out. I am not quite remembering the exact date. There are two books. There's his autobiography, and then there is a biography written by Jennifer Dunning, a dance critic for the New York Times that came out in 1994. Those two were the bedrock for the early research of the film as well. For those who haven't seen the film yet, I did love the way you use the archival footage. It's very specific, but it's not literal. There's an elasticity to it. It's almost like you're playing with clay. I found it very effective and affecting. Another element that you have to draw upon is the choreography of Rennie Harris and his rehearsal of Lazarus, which you use as a narrative thread throughout the film. Can you talk about how you came to partner up with Rennie Harris? That is really another moment of serendipity for the film. When Steve and Amanda and I, and Lauren at that point, started talking about what we were going to try to do with this film, we all felt like showing the company today was a really important part of Ailey's biography, because even though he isn't around with us anymore, his spirit and his vision is still so much a part of what the company is doing. And so we wanted to show the dance company today. So when we pitched the company on making a biography, we said to the current artistic director, Robert Battle, We'd love to have access to some part of the company today. Maybe there's a dancer who's just beginning a dance work or, you know, we don't know if you have any ideas, but if there's something that you think we could have access to, that would be great. And this was 2018. He said, oh, it's so strange that we're talking today because I was just on the phone with Rennie Harris, who we've commissioned to make this one hour ballet for the 60th anniversary that was meant to be a dance work getting at Ailey's life and times. And we just thought, oh man, that's extraordinary. And in part because Rennie's dance language is street dance, which is completely distinct from the dance styles or dance techniques that Ailey used. And so there was a way that so much of his vision could be communicated through a company that he founded that was never envisioned as a company that would only perform his dance works. It was always larger than himself. And so here you have this contemporary choreographer using a language that is completely distinct from Ailey's and yet doing the work of excavating his story. For me in those early days, you know, we thought, oh, it's kind of interestingly meta to be (laughs) filming a process and seeing what this artist is doing as we ourselves as documentarians are engaging in our own process of making sense of Ailey's life. And it was a very tricky balance to arrive at only because Rennie and Alvin are both so compelling that in the early days we would start to work with Rennie's material and we'd be pulled towards Rennie and falling in love with him. (laughs) We'd go back to Ailey and be falling in love with him. And so we were constantly feeling like we were in this kind of fraught relationship between these two incredible choreographers and ultimately thinking about where the thematic connectivity was between what Rennie's work was trying to express about Ailey's life and then where that could come in to support and augment the story that we were telling, the historical story we were telling became our kind of guiding principle. It's also a great Trojan horse for bringing in some amazing dance. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) exactly. You've got a great cast of interviews here, and just about all of them either danced with the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater or were instrumental in running the company. Why did you decide to focus on those insiders for your interviews? We really wanted the film to feel intimate, and we wanted to have a cast. Again, I think this harkens back to what I was saying about the influence of Eyes on the Prize, where I just am really attracted to 
the intimacy that a kind of firsthand witness to history can tell you, a kind of authority that those interviews have because they really and truly knew the man. In the cases of the early company dancers, they're trapped on those buses with him in the earliest days. There's just such a proximity to him. And so that's why we contained it to that. We did have a couple other people outside of the the direct experience with Ailey that we were working with in the earliest parts of our edit. And as sometimes happens in documentary, material will boot itself out of the film. You kind of arrive at a moment and you just realize, oh, something's not working. You try to massage it and it still doesn't find its way into the film. We always knew that it was going to be principally told a smaller chorus of voices of people who actually worked with him. And then the edit proved to us that we had to really keep that very intact and made choices for us in ways. Were you concerned at all, because this is ultimately going to be an American master's program, was there any kind of downside to not having, quote unquote, outside authorities here to validate Ailey as somebody who's a member of the pantheon of, quote unquote, important American artists? The answer to that is yes, <laughs> but, but also, yes, but also. So I come out of a body of work As I said, I made work for PBS, and a lot of those were historical documentaries made for another PBS strand called American Experience. And those, both because of the time period that some of my stories have been set in, which is everything from post-Civil War to early 1900s, oftentimes I am having to rely on scholarly voices or traditional authorities in that sense. So I'm very versed in that. And one thing for me, just as a filmmaker, was wanting to break free of that and be liberated from that. And in Ailey, I wrestled with the idea of like, well, should we have people who can come into the film and talk about how his works were received, say, by the press? And who would do that work for us? Should we have people who can come in and deconstruct and define what is modern dance and where did it emerge from and give us this whole history? That's certainly an approach that would come to the film, but I felt it was going to push the film more into a space of a kind of survey course or educational experience rather than one that felt intimate and alongside the artist. And so even in that choice of say not including, which we don't, any commentary from how the press received it, it was because when I started reading through the press, for example, that he was getting during his lifetime, I would find reviews that were either racist in their exotification of what Ailey was giving them. Like, ooh, I mean, there's early reviews about something like the intensity of the Negro drumming or something that was just sort of like, oh, I don't know that you're actually seeing this work because I think you're receiving something else in the case of this particular scholar. Two people later on who are frustrated with him because of the fact that the Ailey company was so wildly popular and that meant that they had become commercial and they had sort of sold out from basic principles. And so those voices became meaningless to me because I felt like their place of evaluation was so problematic just from a vantage point of their critique and what their critique was rooted in. I remember talking to a scholar and just saying, I don't know, should I? And that scholar was just like, why? Why can't you just allow his work to exist in your film and let the audience come to it for themselves, which felt really risky that I'm basically saying, I'm not going to explain what this dance movement means or where it comes from in the same way that nobody's sitting next to you in the theater, unpacking the dance work as you watch it, right? So in that sense, it wasn't going to be a biography that was interested in the uninitiated. And that's sort of the way I've started to describe it. So in the same ways that I don't actually spend a great deal of time talking about Jim Crow South and the segregation of that, I allow his words to define that. I don't show, for example, a whites only, colors only sign, because that doesn't actually get at what the experience is of feeling, as Mr. Ailey said, that being Black, you were just nothing. Like I thought hearing him say that about the experience of growing up where he did was bigger and more important and, and more meaningful to me than 
explaining racial history to the audience. Same for dance, same for sexuality. So there are interesting choices in doing that. And you're leaving stuff on the edit room floor that some people might feel like they have more guardrails or they're better supported by some kind of educational aspects that a story can tell you. But for me, I'm really bored of that as a filmmaker. Just let me, can documentaries have subtext? Can they allow me, the viewer, to come to my own conclusions? I was really interested in pushing that a bit in this film. I also think you benefit from having some incredible storytellers among the dancers. I've seen many dance documentaries and Dancers are great movers. They're not always able to articulate the experience of dance. It's a hard thing to do, to talk about something that you do, you know, but that isn't the case here. These folks are incredibly articulate, moving, and I too come out of the Eyes on the Prize tradition. I was actually an intern on Eyes on the Prize too. Oh my gosh, amazing. (laughs) Yeah, well, one of the things that moved me about the first series and made me want to be a part of it was that authenticity of if they weren't in the room while that history was being made, they're not in the program. So I really felt like we were hearing stories from the people who are on that bus traveling on that tour, who were in the room during the rehearsals. And so it made a huge difference. Let's talk about the opening of the film. You begin with a clip from the Kennedy Center Honors event, I think in 1988, in which Ailey is being honored. Why did you want to start the film there? So we actually constructed the opening after we had constructed the whole of the film. I can be what I like to call as like a first sentence person of a paragraph. And when I approach work in that way, I get completely stuck. Some people, like if they write their first sentence, they know exactly where they're going for the rest. That becomes their guiding principle. And I just find that I get stuck. The film would never get made if I, <laughs> if I had to figure that out. So we basically for a very long time had a card that said, open. And then we just kept building out the story. And when we got to the end and we saw how fraught the Kennedy Center honors actually were for Alvin Ailey in terms of he is now in this moment being celebrated and honored by Ronald Reagan, who was the president at the time, while he is privately grappling with his HIV, which he was suffering from at the time. It became interesting to think about what that meant for his journey. So when we thought about, okay, let's open the film with what people know, which is, oh my gosh, he's one of the most important artists of the 20th century. He's being celebrated. You hear the national anthem. It's sort of the biggest, loudest, and really and truly most significant artistic achievement that an American artist can receive on many levels. And then you go on the journey to see how he got there and you experience how much sacrifice dedication, perseverance, resilience that all of that took. And so we became intrigued at the possibility of having this kind of bookend where there's a real sadness and tragedy, you could say there, where sort of the highest moment where he is being recognized and given his due is also very complicated and revealing about all the ways he was limited by the obstacles that were put in front of him because he was a gay Black man from (laughs) the rural South. And we just thought that would be an interesting way to bookend the film. When I was watching the film and I saw that sequence, I didn't realize at the time that you were posing a question that would be answered later. And there's a real payoff to it later in the film. Let's talk Revelations, which premiered in 1960, over 50 years ago. How did you wrap yourself around the 360 degree importance of this piece in relation to Ailey's emergence as an artist, his own life, and its impact on dance and beyond? Revelations is the trap in many ways of telling Ailey's story because it is obviously his, for those of you who know, it is his most significant dance work. It is epic in its own right. It is 30 minutes and it has this chaptered approach to showcasing different aspects of what you could call the journey of a people, really. I think it is a dance that expresses the history of the African-American experience and the Southern African-American experience that allowed for this culture to survive and thrive, really, as you experience at the end of that dance. I, I kind of didn't want to work with it right away in the beginning of the film because it's so great. It felt like not the easiest part of the story to tell, but of course we have to do it. It was hard because what pieces of that dance work are you going to showcase? Fortunately, we were really guided by the people that we interviewed in terms of listening to the things 
that they said that they felt, and then digging into the dance and finding moments that visually achieved what the dancers themselves, each dancer that we interview basically tells a story of seeing the work when they were students and then realizing that either A, being a dancer, pursuing dance was something that they should do and was possible for them, or realizing that the kind of dance works that Alvin Ailey were doing were exactly what they wanted to do. It was in many ways taking it out of, oh, isn't this what the greatest piece of art you've ever seen? And really being in the experience of dancers who connected with the work and hearing them tell you why. It is a dance that is very rooted in Ailey's Baptist religious experience and thinking about the church as this very profound and fundamental institution for Black community and also, I think, for Black progress. Obviously, the church is foundational to the civil rights movement. It is a private space in many ways because it is a space that has been outside of larger white society and therefore is really a space of relief, I think. And I think you feel some of that in the dance. And then there's a kind of joyous transcendence and a kind of hope for a better day. It's funny because with Ailey's dance works, often you'll see critics talking about this fatigue of the message of hope at the end and that they feel, oh, the Ailey company with its sort of hopeful message. But I always feel, and I feel it with Revelations too, that it's a dance that it is unfulfilled in a way, that the hope that is happening on that stage is unfulfilled because the next day is Monday. And then the next day you have to go back into, in his case, we're talking 1960 when the dance was made, you have to go back into an extremely hostile world where there is violence and brutality and an active effort to marginalize and diminish and remove you from society in every way. And in our case, watching it in 2021, obviously those themes have not left us. I think that it's more a kind of hope for what the world could be than it is saying, we've done it, we've succeeded, we've transcended. I think it's a kind of spiritual transcendence as opposed to a real idea that the world has changed. So taking all of that on, (laughs) I don't know if I've answered your question. I mean, it is a mammoth dance work, but we came into it sort of really wanting to first understand Ailey's own experience of the church and a kind of joy and ecstatic expression and theatricality that he saw there, and then just showcase elements from the dance itself. It's both a story about what Ailey was trying to communicate. And then I think through the dancers who would later dance for the company, how that was received. And Ailey danced in it for how long? So he actually retired from dancing in 65. So the dance was 1960 and so five years. And it's absolutely a dream that there is actually footage of him and speaking of <laughs> speaking of that, there is that remarkable black and white footage. It looks like you shot it off a TV set. I know you didn't, but you keep coming back to it for good reason because it's transcendent, it's hypnotic, it's beautiful. It's also really well shot. I mean, shooting dance well is challenging. And to the credit of the CBS <laughs> lamp onto my feet, folks, well done because it's very well shot. Where did that appear? We actually have a couple different versions in it. We have black and white footage from, it would have been their first State Department tour in 1960. So those shots of Alvin Ailey dancing with Carmen de Lavalade, where you see him in the wade in the water section very close up, that's actually State Department footage of Alvin. So that would have been in, in 1960. And then The other footage that we use where you do not see Carmen de Lovelot, who's the woman with the very long hair, is from a 1962 performance that they did. It was filmed for a program called Lamp Unto My Feet. That was a CBS, I believe, arts and culture program. And that is actually when the dance work in many ways gets codified into the various sections. Here we are more than 50 years later, and I was on the ALA website, and Revelations looks like it's going to be part of the opening night gala in New York City in a couple of weeks, which is the first time they're going to be on stage with an audience since the pandemic. So it lives on. Yes, it does. Gratefully. (laughs) As we go through the film, you show a number of clips from Ailey's different dances over the years that he choreographed. What did you learn about his evolution as an artist as you watched the footage of these various dances? What I love about what he's often trying to do is he is trying to find, as Bill T. Jones says, I think a poetry. I think he's somebody who, because he was so deeply private, and it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that either staging work 
And performing publicly is a place where a whole host of emotions can come through him and resonate out to the world or by staging work on other dancers. I think he had a tricky evolution because I think right out of the gate, so 1958 is Blue Sweet, which is his first dance work, which awakens the public of that time to this kind of new voice, right? It shows, oh, he can choreograph. And then with Revelations, just two years later, he gets this masterpiece, right? Which shows he's a genius. And so then where do you go from there? But I think in all of his dance works, and it's something we talk about in the film, he's somebody who's very influenced by what is happening in the world around him. He is somebody who is looking for dances that can allow for an expression of beauty and joy. I think he knows that because of his own duality, there is a dark side to life and he is in search of the things that are beautiful because beauty is a kind of form of resistance that he seems to understand and be drawn to. I think of a dance work like Cry and what our subject in the film, Mary Barnett says this notion of I am and what does it mean to be dancing on stage and trying to sort of get at an essence of who you are. And then if you can get at an essence of who you are and the sort of universal qualities to what is animating who you are, then that's something that will create connection with audiences. That theme is something that is recurrent throughout his work. And I think it's because he, like so many of us, was really grappling with trying to get at that. And then there's a lot of dances that we don't have in the film that are just ones that are just about fun. You know, I I think of something like Night Creatures, which is a dance that we show little pieces of, which is just an evening of beautiful Ellington jazz and it's folks out on the dance floor. And it's just about bodies in motion and movement and fun. Again, very beautiful, very sensual. But yeah, I think his most personal works and the ones that have the staying power have that because he is always creating dance works that are really kind of wrestling with a sense of who are these bodies on stage? What do they need? I think knowing the full scope of his life and his struggles with mental health, there's a kind of psychic integrity that he's in search of. And his dance works, I don't think they evolve tremendously in terms of thematically what they're trying to do. He kind of keeps coming back to similar themes and staging it in different ways. Bill T. Jones talks about form and the search for form, to paraphrase. Did you hear Ailey in the archives or in interviews talk about form much? I didn't hear him talk much about form. But I think, you know, in later years, if you look at a dance like Flowers or if you look at a dance like Streams, again, these are dances that are not featured in the film in their entirety. I think he was trying to play with expectation at times. He comes back to things that work, but I do think he was pushing at, with certain dances, an expectation about what he was supposed to be doing formally. Streams is his first non-plot driven dance. It's just sort of a series of movements of dances, dancers kind of moving by diagonally across the street. It doesn't have any story. It's very stripped down. It's set to this Czechoslovakian composer. It's very different. And I think like all artists, he was not interested in being put in boxes. And I think that's what Bill T. Jones is really saying. Like, I'm trying to escape the set of expectations that that Ailey had. It seems like Ailey was very instinctive in his approach to the work, but that doesn't mean form wasn't a part of his process. And one of the things that I found myself asking is, it seems like Ailey met with success as a choreographer pretty early on, especially abroad, but getting a dance company up and running and making it sustainable and paying all the salaries, it's a huge challenge. And I was just thinking back to those times of the early 60s, how was it that the company was able to survive in those early years and then thrive? In the earliest years, we're talking 60 on to about 68, 69, it's really through the State Department that funding that they get that allows them to go on these international tours. But in those early years, it wasn't, oh, here are my 33 dancers that are on staff and they get paid this salary and then they take a hiatus during this month and everything's very organized. It was very much dancers are coming, dancers are going. I'm getting people for short periods of time. In those early days, they weren't always getting paid. (laughs) They're doing it for love. I mean, forget about healthcare. There's no salary. I think it was a very different time for dance. I think every dance company from, you know, Merce Cunningham to Alvin Ailey is having this struggle because of the ways that dance is really under-resourced. In 68 and 69 is when the company gets their national tours, and then eventually they get set dates for performing in New York. All through Ailey's life, it's financially a beast. It's just something that is, I think, with every year 
there's a possibility that it won't exist the year following. It doesn't actually come into its most secure financial position until after he passes. Let's talk about how you approach portraying Ailey's personal life. What guided you in knowing how to balance his personal life with his public one? So really, it was the information that we had and the very limited information we had, I should say, from those audio cassettes. It's so interesting and and kind of heartbreaking when you think about it, that the two relationships that we mention, relationship is maybe too strong a word, sexual experiences that we mentioned in the film that he mentions are his earliest experience with Chauncey, a young boy in Texas, who he encounters and kind of awakens his sense of his own sexuality. And then this relationship in the 70s with Abdullah, a Moroccan man he meets overseas. And those are the only mentions. That's all we had. And then, you know, we start to speak with his collaborators and all we could get at was an absence. And so he took his private life with him when he left. There isn't a huge record of that. It's not to say that nobody gets to speculate in the film but we were very careful about who we would allow to be a surrogate for his experience. And the closest we really get is with Bill T. Jones's speculations, what might be motivating Ailey, because he felt like the closest person to be able to talk about those experiences. But I, I think a lot about what we're entitled to in terms of access to the private lives of our public figures and the fact that he wanted to be private that we don't have all the reasons for that is still meaningful to me. And I'm uncomfortable with the idea of letting people psychoanalyze him. I mean, unless he said to them, listen, it's because I grew up without my dad and my mom. You know, if he had said that to somebody, I would have allowed them to go deeper there. But because everybody was guessing at it, it just felt that it was important to let the documentary say that to allow me to leave the film wondering about why and maybe thinking about my own relationship to vulnerability as an artist or my private life or my public life. It's intriguing because I know it's an absence that people want to know what's there, what was happening there. And I think so much about that being an odd, it's not just that we desire it, it's we are entitled to it. You allowed yourself to be a public figure and therefore I'm now allowed into your bedroom and your refrigerator and your underwear drawer <laughs> and like your leftover containers sitting on your table. And I appreciate why it's humanizing, but I think the vulnerability that he expresses in the film also is humanizing. And so what we were guided by was trying to create an emotional experience of it over being able to really detail what precisely was the issue. Plus, you do have the incredible Bill T. Jones. I have to say, you know, Bill T. Jones in this film is just incredible. These interviews with him are some of, you know, the best I've ever seen. Oh, wow. Thank you. Um, and there's this extraordinary soundbite that comes near the end of the film. Ailey died in 1989 of an AIDS-related illness. You're talking to Bill T. Jones, and he talks about the pressures from those in society. And he even speculates about those pressures coming from Ailey's own mother because mm -hmm. of her Southern Baptist background, to edit out the fact that dancers could ever be or were gay, that they had sex, and that some of them got AIDS. Mm -hmm. And then there's this extraordinary moment where Jones says, speaking of Ailey, and he participated in the editing of it. That just took my breath away, because there's almost a sense of judgment there from Bill T. Jones. He's probably the only one we would even want to go to a place like that of judgment. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about just that interview with Bill T. Jones? I want to start by saying I am extraordinarily grateful that Bill T. Jones agreed to participate in the film. He didn't have to. He has many things that he's doing in his own right. We didn't have a pre-interview where I typically have pre-interviews or I meet with interview subjects in advance of the filming because... I just, A, I want to kind of have a sense of what I might expect, and B, I want them to be able to ask me questions because I want us to come into the interview with a sense of connection, really. So we didn't have that. So I was extremely, I mean, I can't tell you how nervous I was. I, basically, Bill T. Jones and Judith Jameson were the two interviews that I was most nervous about and intimidated by and, and wanting there to be a kind of experience of openness between us. He sat down that day, and before we started, Started, you know, as we're just tweaking the lights and setting everything up. And he said, hey, can you remind me when was Alvin born? I said, oh, he was born in 1931. 
And he said, oh my gosh, he was my father's age. And there was just something in that moment that I thought it gave him a reminder of actually the kind of gap between the two experiences that the two of them had, that they are truly different. I mean, that Alvin could have been his father is, I think, was sort of amazing to him. And it was great. I think that Bill T. Jones was trying to figure it out for himself. Like, who was this man that he encountered? They have a very interesting dynamic in the sense that when Bill T. Jones came to New York, people told him because he's black, oh, you should go to Alien, they'll finish you. And he was totally offended by the idea that the kind of dance work he should do, he should want to do, should be defined by this. And so I think there was a kind of frustration there. Bill T. Jones is now a kind of elder statesman of the very dance that he was a part of. And there are younger people who are challenging him, pushing him, kind of nipping at his heel. So he also is aware of like, he was this brash young Turk coming on the scene, which is how he described himself at the time. And I think he has a greater sense of all that Ailey went through because he's now so much further along in his own career. He's running a whole dance center. He knows what it means to have a board, to have to be accountable. Well, you know, it's no longer the avant-garde downtown scene where everything is put together with bubble gum and a toothpick and you're just making do, but you also, you aren't accountable to anyone. So I think in that interview, he was in a place of wanting to be very truthful and honest, but also having a sense of compassion. And I think that's what I get. I also was like that statement that you just quoted, so important. So important to be honest about that, that Ailey was not, he did not choose to disclose his status at this very critical moment where, you know, would it have meant something? Would it have opened up the possibility for people to think like, oh, who is contracting this and what does it mean? But I think in the full summation of what Bill T. Jones is saying, he is also acknowledging that, no, there would maybe not have been that compassion there for Ailey right? Would the support have been there? He's very clear that the pressure that Ailey is under in that moment is not just one of personal stigma, which maybe is, that's how he's disappointed his mother, for example. It is a stigma of what does it mean when you are the sole representative of a race of people? What does it mean when people have propped you up and made you into this kind of figure? What does it mean to the people who have been funding your company? I mean, there are so many pressures on him in that moment that are outside of what his personal choices are. And he was alone. He had built a world in which even at the moment that he, you know, there's another great anecdote where Mazazumi Chaya, who is his artistic director, tells us, oh, you know, he invited me to his apartment one time and he wanted to get close to me and I didn't want to. He gestures with his hands, like, I wanted to keep him up here on a pedestal, he says. And so not only did Ailey edit out this part of his life, he had also built a world for himself in which he doesn't really have anyone around him, maybe who can help him in that moment, which is something that Bill T. Jones speculates. So it's a very complicated point that I think he's making. And it's one in which you kind of have to hold both of these truths up. You have to say, yes, it was extraordinarily pressure-filled moment, but also he did choose not to disclose. And that is really problematic and something that we have to wrestle with. And I think really problematic for somebody in Bill T. Jones's position who has a partner who has disclosed, who is dying. They are living parallel experiences, but they are on different sides of the divide in terms of, and again, generational, Ailey being part of a generation of people who do not disclose this kind of thing. And Bill T. Jones and Arnie Zane, his partner and collaborator, being people who said, no, we were going to knock down every wall and we refuse to be judged in this way. So it was just one of those moments that happens in an interview where you're just like very grateful that your subject is there, is present. And I will say one more thing at the end of the interview, <laughs> this amazing thing happened where he reached out his hands to me and we had him up on these Apple boxes. And I, I thought he was asking me, this is hilarious, for help to get out of the chair, which that man is in better shape than I will ever be in in my life. So he wasn't, but he held my hand and he just said, you know, this was really meaningful and important. And I just felt like, Again, wanting to have that connection and wanting to have him feel open and to tell his perspective. And so it was one of those great interviews of all time. <laughs> <laughs> As you said, he is so incredibly present and he really brings it. Alvin, it seems, was a bit of a taskmaster when it came to his dancers. On top of that, the fact that the dance company has his name on it 
This creates a certain power dynamic. How intimidating a presence could Alvin be to his dancers? And I don't mean to imply that he was just this ogre, because he's clearly not. But what can you tell us about his presence in the rehearsal space, for instance? For anyone tuning into this who knows something about the dance world, I will say that many people said, and we didn't include it, but that he was by no means a Jerome Robbins. So anyone who knows the stories (laughs) of the very exacting and sort of terrifying work with Jerome Robbins, he was not cruel in that sense. I think he absolutely wanted perfection, but his way of getting it was these snide remarks, or as Judith Jameson says, can you dance, you know, oh, that was beautiful. Now will you dance my steps, please? Like, I mean, it's just so great. Whatever you're doing is great, but that's not my choreography. And also there were stories that I read about of him. He would wait in the wings. And that was always in your earliest days as a performer, he'd be standing in the wings watching. And if he wasn't there, you knew that you had graduated to a place in which he trusts you. But if he's waiting in the wings, he's there waiting to give you notes on the side. So I think very exacting, I think wanting perfection. But at the same time, it was extraordinary to me to hear how many people like his generosity. And it's interesting that generosity, because it's a generosity coming from a person who is so private. So there's a kind of endless giving with no kind of request. (laughs) for something for himself, which I find interesting. I've encountered people like that. They are the kinds of people who, when you walk into the room, you feel this spotlight on you from them and you are everything to them. They're giving you insight into yourself and it's incredible and you feel seen and you feel recognized and you feel loved. And then they go away and you realize you don't know anything about them. (laughs) So there's an interesting quality to his generosity that I remain curious about. I think he was legitimately a generous person, but I think it was a kind of generosity that allowed him also to keep his own privacy in many ways, which is intriguing. We asked about the opening, so we have to ask about the ending. You mentioned that the opening came last, that those are a challenge for you. In terms of the ending, how did you figure out what were going to be the last notes or dance steps, if you will, of your own film? I'll just say for the audience, when the ending arrives, we've just seen a section kind of detailing Ailey's physical demise leading to his death. We hear about a moving tribute from the company to Ailey. And then you cut back to the studio where the dancers are rehearsing or performing Rennie Harris's dance, Lazarus. And then intercut with this dance is an interview with Judith Jameson, who is simply amazing in the film (laughs) as well. So can you talk about coming up with the ending for the film? For a long time, if beginnings are hard, endings, it's four or five endings. <laughs> In some part of it, the edit, we were like, okay, now we've only got three endings. How can we feel like we have one arc that really comes to a conclusion? I'm not sure if we always knew we were going to end in the contemporary space, but obviously that began to have more and more significance as we worked with the Rennie material. The real moment was seeing Miss Jameson's genuine reaction to this part of Lazarus where it's Rennie Harris's voice actually, and he calls out to Mr. Ailey and there's no response. It's funny because I had seen the dance rehearsed many, many times at that point, but this was the day she was coming. We have two cameras that day, and I am next to the one camera that's in motion. We're moving around the dance space, and we had one that was locked off at the front of the room just getting a master. And I'm like, okay, so it's coming. It's coming. Okay, turn the camera. You know, just look at and stay on Miss Jameson, and let's just see what happens. And we were pretty far from her. She had no idea that's how the dance was evolving. This was her first time seeing the full run through because she is the Emeritus Artistic Director. So she's not there every day, but she came through and she had this very genuine reaction. And we just thought, well, that's great. And then we did an interview with her right after her seeing that work. And that's where she delivers this great line about the company continuing to be his breath out. This film is in many ways, it is a, a biographical portrait. I always use that term because it is very much a film about my sense of who Mr. Ailey is. Somebody else would have made a different film. At the same time, it is a love letter from the people who worked and were closest to him, from me to him. And that sense of understanding that he continues to live on is so meaningful. I I interviewed Robert Battle early days in the film too. And he had said this thing that stuck with me where he said, you know, did he die in 1989? I don't think so. And it's so true. If you walk into that building today, you can't because of COVID protocols. But when you can, there is just an extraordinary energy that's there. And I'm not one of these people that's into crystals and energy and things like that. But there is a sense that people understand 
the sort of legacy that they're carrying on. And this space that he made, unlike every other modern dance choreographer who created companies in their own name, in their own image, who only dance their works, Alvin always had a sense of it being bigger than himself. And the idea that he wanted to create a space where you could come in, as he says in the film, and add your own voice. And that's what it is. There's an entire building dedicated to the next dancer who has a great, you know, choreographer who has a great idea could come in, stage work. The company still continues to do that. And so it's not true if we don't capture and give back to the viewers in this film a sense of what he continues to mean. And that's where we understood that he is not dead. And so we wanted the end of the film to really be alive with the life and the breath and the movement that continues to be so integral to that space and ultimately to his biography. We also like to give folks an opportunity to mention or thank any people who participated in the making of the film. That list is extraordinarily long, but off the top of my head, of course, all the funders who generously gave to the film to get the project off the ground. And in terms of the creative team, I'd like to thank Stephen Ives, Amanda Pollock, and Judy Kinberg, and Michael Cantor, who are executive producers. Incredible producer, Lauren DeFilippo, my editor, Anna Galilia, the Ailey Company, of course, for granting us access to tell the story, and Rennie Harris, who bravely allowed us to film his rehearsal of Lazarus. We'd love to hear what's up next for you. So the project I'm on now is not announced yet, so I can't say anything more specific than I am currently helming a six-part documentary music series that will be out hopefully sometime next year. Thank you so much, Jamila, for being with us today. Like Alvin Ailey's dance masterpiece, this film is a revelation. I urge everyone to watch for it on American Masters, on your local PBS station. It's an experience you will not soon forget. And it is joyful and it is wonderful. And thank you so much, Jamila. Congratulations. Thank you. Do you have a hidden gem, a film that you don't think gets the attention it deserves? Yeah, I'm not sure if this is a film that does or doesn't get the attention it deserves, but there's a wonderful documentary film called uh, Harry Dean Stanton, Partly Fiction. And it's just this beautiful, meditative portrait of the wonderful character actor Harry Dean Stanton. And actually, it really made me think about how you can approach documentary biography or portraiture in that kind of way, working to get at the essence of some of these extraordinary artists and individuals. 